we can't talk about mental health without talking about social justice. Uh, and there is so much healing to be done on those levels. So really looking at it, not just from an individual, you know, having individual access to these medicines, but also how, in a way, the whole structure can be changed with an element of compassion and, and true care and concern for, for the people around us and, and not just about profit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Please Hustle Responsibly podcast. This podcast was the brainchild of support staff team Matt Cole, Christina Veltri, and Christina Magro. And we're here to give you tools to better advocate for yourselves within and outside of the food and beverage industry. Today is our final episode of Mental Health Awareness Month. Woo! And we're completing our series of alternative medicine. But before we get into that, with Stacey Berman today. Um, Matt Cole, how are you doing? Uh, I'm all right. I am a little tired. Had a had some college friends in town this weekend, uh, which was super exciting, uh, but also kind of weird, like being out and about and social and going to places that I haven't gone to in over a year. And, you know, I think that definitely took it out of me a little bit. But overall, I'm pretty good. How are you, Valtry? I'm doing well. Um, just kind of tired, but good all around. Magro, how are you? You know, I'm doing good. Um, I joined a bowling league a couple weeks ago, and I, you know, you got to lean all in. So I like got a ball and um, some shoes, and I'm really bad with the new ball, but I'm like not taking that lying down. So I've been like. <laughs> Waking up and practicing. <laughs> like just in your house? Yeah. So you're just like you're just like dry swinging the the ball. <laughs> yeah, that's what the guy in the pro shop told me to do. So All right. <laughs> I'm just, how does Max feel? How does Max feel about that? Um, he doesn't understand what kind of game we're playing. <laughs> but. Uh, so, you know, that's the new and exciting uh, thing that's happening in my life is I got a bowling ball. <laughs> What's your bowling ball look like? <laughs> um, thanks for asking. It's <laughs> this, like, copper swirl going into, like, this kind of um, gunmetal gray. Oh. Um, to be fair, it was the only one with for my size. Um, but it's pretty cool, and I really like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And just like you, Matt, it was like, you know, being in this bowling league, it's uh, our first time like out and about, you know, so um, we're like the only ones in the bowling alley, like still wearing masks after like the CDC. And I'm like, it's okay. I don't care. I'm still doing this until I feel comfortable. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, really excited about this conversation we're going to have. But before we get into it, Stacey, how are you doing today? Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm okay. I'm I'm feeling all right, a little tired also. And uh, similar to Matt, I, I was out 
and about this weekend a little bit and noticing afterward all this guilt, just guilt about was I weird? <laughs> was I <laughs> was I awkward with people? Did what I say offended people? So I'm sort of learning how to re-enter uh, and noticing a lot of a lot of judgment actually and <laughs> guilt coming up. So yeah. Yeah, it's I weird. feel the it's same. It's weird like, to reemerge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really uh uh I feel like I'm a pretty socially awkward person pre-COVID. So then emerging post-COVID, it's like, ah, I just got to figure out how to talk again. Yeah. (laughs) Anyone's guess what's going to happen, right? (laughs) All right. Well, let's just dive right into it. So to conclude our Mental Health Health Awareness Month, um, we have spent the time focusing this month on alternative forms of medication for folks. Um, who are kind of newly embarking on their mental health journeys. So today we have Stacy Berman with us. And before we dive into it, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll go back kind of far and give a, a, a brief history. Um, I was born here in Chicago in uh, Wheeling, I guess that's a suburb. And I say, I guess, because we moved to California when I was two. So I grew up in San Diego um, and had a pretty, pretty good privileged life. Uh, Went to college in San Diego and um, actually skipped around a bit, ended up uh, finishing in San Diego. And while I was in school, um, I was really interested in um, uh, working in the music industry. So I did that for a few years. So I just want to say also that I'm really happy to kind of be back in in the on-air adjacent world. Um, and uh, was really interested in music and uh, was pursuing actually, yeah, being an on-air person. And in college, I took a... Um, a general ed class in women's studies. And this class got my attention in a way that um, no other class had. And uh, so I decided actually to change my major from communications to women's studies. And I would say that that was sort of a a real big turning point for me um, when I started to realize through that education that Um, what we're taught about ourselves is not necessarily what's true or what we think about ourselves isn't necessarily what's true. And in the women's studies program was also sort of a comprehensive review of history and literature and art and music um, from not only a women's perspective, but also a BIPOC perspective. And so not only what we think about ourselves, but also maybe what we think about other people isn't necessarily what's true. So that really um, developed my interest in sort of self-discovery and what is true and what can be true. Um, And then I was also in therapy myself at the time in college, struggling with anxiety and depression, things that I didn't really know or have names for uh, and was able to put names to them. 
and from there started sort of um, exploring with altered states of consciousness, uh, including yoga, uh, which was sort of my entree to meditation, um, and decided that I wanted to go back to school to be a therapist. So that's when my radio and music industry career sort of shifted um, into, into this work. Um, so I went back to school. I um, moved back to Chicago. Here I uh, went to um, graduate school and got my um, master's degree in marriage and family therapy. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. And um, since, since graduating, I've worked um, in different settings, including um, eating disorder treatment. Um, I've worked in the private practice setting. And then I've um, also been interested in doing different kinds of training. So um, one of the ways that I work is with a mindfulness perspective. So I'm also, in addition to being a therapist, I am a um, mindful self-compassion teacher. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that. I teach uh, classes online and in the Chicago area. And um, again, that's, that's very much about um, how we treat ourselves, how we meet ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, and how we grow past limitations of our own self. And so I have a private practice here in Chicago. My office is in the loop, although I've been working from my home for the last 15 months, 14 months. Uh, and I work with people who have depression and anxiety and developmental and relational trauma uh, is my particular interest. And so in addition to those things, and part of what I'm here today to talk about is a current certification that I'm working towards, which is in psychedelic assisted therapies and research. So a brief comprehensive <laughs> history. That's incredible. Like so many different paths to lead you to this journey, but I feel like are all relevant in uh, treating human beings. Yes. Very well said. Yeah. All relevant. Yeah. Like we had an uh, episode previously, like in the beginning with somebody who went to the Compassion Institute and it was just like mind blowing for us because it's just a whole different, you know, train of thought that I think would benefit every single human being if, if they would just participate in it. I really think that too. And I try to steer away from things that are like panaceas or ideas that this one thing for everyone, but I really do believe that one. Absolutely. We could all benefit from having a little bit more compassion. Well, let's dive into um, this certification that you're going towards right now, specifically on psychedelics and how that could, how those forms of treatment could help someone who's struggling with various different mental health challenges. So do you mind, because we're just going to treat this like a one-on-one, do you mind just telling us like how these um, alternative forms of treatment can help somebody who traditionally doesn't want to take pharmaceutical medication? Yeah. So I do want to also, before we jump into that, kind of be explicit that I am very uh, new to this um, 
field in an academic sense. I certainly have my own experiences. Um, but being in, in this program right now, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an expert. Um, my interest is really um, from my uh, clinical work, really seeing the direction that things can move in with these psychedelic um, medicines. So just wanted to make that note. Um, so for somebody who might not want to participate in a traditional psychiatric medication regimen, it's certainly understandable. You know, while psych psychiatry has been really helpful and um, psychiatric medications have been super helpful and are super, super helpful and life-saving for a lot of people, it's also quite understandable why many wouldn't want to. Um, uh, there have been sort of systemically and structurally um, big problems with even just diagnostics in terms of over-diagnosing certain populations of people, under-diagnosing others, or misunderstandings. Um, and then also people just don't necessarily want to take that route for whatever reasons. Um, and they tend to be more um, long-term. They're not necessarily intended to be long-term. Um, really sort of a benchmark of treatment is to use um, medication alongside talk therapy and then use um, that to develop more um, coping skills or different strategies to, to deal with whatever um, the struggle may be and then to work your way off. That's not always how... Um, these medications are used. So people might use or be interested in psychedelics um, for the more short-term uh, effects that they offer, or at least treatment uh, span that they offer. Um, and also part of the efficacy of psychedelics, and this is um, what we hear anecdotally is that it, it offers um, a means of healing that feels like it's sort of taking place within, that certain sort of wisdom emerges or um, a way of being with difficult parts of self or trauma. Um, it can be, those, those parts of self can be met in a different, in a different way. While certainly it can be challenging to do that, it can also um, be quite healing. So can we just talk about um, psilocybin really quickly and what that is and how that could help people in small doses? Yeah, well, I, um, so psilocybin is the psychoactive property of ma uh, magic mushrooms. And again, um, I, I I wouldn't be able to speak to kind of the chemical um, compounds or makeup of these substances, um, but that's sort of your um, basic definition of, of psilocybin. Um, and uh, in terms of small doses, there is um, what people use for microdosing psilocybin. I will say in the program that I'm in, that isn't quite the kind of use that what uh, that I'm learning to administer is microdosing. 
Um, but in terms of like the shorter treatment span, um, how that can be used in some of the research studies that have been done, that there are, um, you know, a participant would be connected with a, two therapists. And there are, uh, there's a treatment protocol where there are preparatory sessions. So the therapists and the participant will meet, develop rapport. Um, there will be some psychoeducation about what might happen in the, uh, when the medication or the medicine is administered and look at what are the goals that are, that are being um, looked to accomplish and also acknowledging that maybe those goals aren't gonna be met and allowing whatever process happens to happen. And it's really about developing trust. Um, so you hear about the, the terminology set and setting um, with actually any, any um, psychedelic that would be taken. Um, set refers to the mindset. And so these preparatory sessions help to establish a safe mindset. Um, and that's, again, the rapport with the therapist that you're working with and a trust that's developed. And then the setting is uh, the actual environment that you're in, <laughs> establishing a sense of safety, calm, it's um, a soothing place. Participants know where the exit is. They know, um, you know sort of exactly where they are and to, to minimize or mitigate, mitigate any um, bad reactions. And then um, depending on the, the research or depending on the study, um, there can be um, between maybe one and three or four administrations of the medicine, um, usually broken up by a couple weeks or a month on an ongoing basis. And so there's the prep sessions and then there are the journeys um, when the medication, the medicine is administered and then there's the integration sessions afterward um, that help to process what might've come up um, and how to, how to integrate the experiences into the person's mind and life. So folks are coming in and then they're taking this treatment in the office with an intention of solving or like I am intentionally coming in here to address this specific issue and mm -hmm. then these treatments are geared towards this one specific issue you're saying like well say I'm going in there I have my prep and then I have my journey and then I continue my therapy treatments to integrate what I'm trying to achieve through that journey in life. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, since, so just to, to clarify a piece about that, um, since right now psilocybin is a schedule one drug, meaning, um, it is illegal, um, and there is no recognized medical use for it. And it's considered to have um, a high rate of abuse. Um, there are very structured research uh, studies for the use of psilocybin. And 
the one of the main research areas right now is on people who have terminal cancer and are um, have high distress around end of life. So that might be what they're coming into these research studies for. Um, and the prep sessions will explore that. Um, again, there's just sort of an establishment of safety and trust with the therapists. And they may have, yeah, the certain intention of um, focusing on this high distress um, that's arising from end of life and sort of allowing whatever emerges in the treatment to happen. And then, so um, there are also studies for depression that exist right now as well. Um, they're in, um, in other areas, not just psilocybin, but MDMA, um, looking at PTSD, anxiety, um, addiction, alcohol addiction, and opioid addiction. There's also research studies on anorexia, eating disorders as well. And again, um, MDMA, different substances are being studied, but the, the treatment protocol tends to follow that sort of same structure. Um, of course, um, there are variances to that as well. So I know Christina and I had this question because we were talking about it a couple weeks well, ago. Okay. I just want to say like all of the, like, I know where you're going to go with this. And all of this is so foreign to me because I'm like such a novice. Like I did mushrooms once and I had a bad experience. And while you're talking about this, I'm like, are these mushrooms like lab grown and specific or is this literally like what people hunt for because <laughs> there's so many different varietals of mushroom that are like you know safe to eat and then all the way to like deadly so my mind is just like I can't even wrap my mind around this so I know that magro is going into ketamine treatment which is like even further of like I just <laughs> It's so interesting and cool, but I, I'm just like, what? Isn't that illegal? How is this? Like, so yeah. really interested in all of this. I am, um, whatever. You know what? I'm just going to say it. I was in an experience uh, a couple weeks ago where someone was recreationally doing ketamine. And I was just like, um, I'm not here to judge. I know that this is an alternative form of treatment for what I have no idea. Um, so I would like to bookmark this and ask about it at a later time. Um, so this is the later time. I have a question. I've heard a lot about uh, ketamine treatments in this um, alternative space of medication. And I'm just wondering, um, I'm I'm just wondering because I don't really know much about ketamine other than like it's a horse tranquilizer, I think, or that's what I've heard of it. So um, what does that look like? What exactly like is ketamine and how that could help people? So ketamine is um, it, it's still not intended for recreational use. Um, <laughs> to be fair, people in the world... <laughs> I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so ketamine um, is is what's called a dissociative anesthetic. So it, it's used for um, it's a tranquilizer, right? Yes, a, a horse tranquilizer. It's also used on humans, um, and it, it um, it's a Schedule Three drug, which means that it's approved by the FDA for medical use. So if you were to maybe, you know, you, I don't know, you, you have some sort of physical trauma and you go into the ER, you might be administered ketamine um, for, as a, for its numbing and anesthetizing properties. Um, it's used a lot on children and it's used a lot on elderly people um, because the effects of it are, are pretty mild, but quite effective. Um, and, and so it has that sedative um, or that uh, tranquilizing effect. How it's used in um, mental health treatment, which to be clear, it's not um, approved for mental health use by the FDA. Uh, so you'll hear, uh, maybe you've heard on the radio, like um, commercials for ketamine clinics, or you know that there are ketamine clinics here in Chicago. Um, and so right now, insurance does not cover um, the use of ketamine for any mental health issues. However, uh, still, it is still being administered and used in that way at a different dosage. Um, so again, sort of playing with the different dosage can give um, an experience of, it's not quite a psychedelic drug, although there can be hallucinogen, hallucinogenic properties and experiences on it. Um, and part of how it's used for um, mental health is that uh, it gives people an experience of sort of a um, separation from their, what they might experience is their pain emotionally or um, mental uh, or psychological pain and help them to experience that in a different way. Again, I, I don't administer, I, mean, I don't work with any of these ketamine clinics, but that's my understanding of it and how it can exist in, um, uh, in this clinical way, in a different way than um, like MDMA or psilocybin, which again, those are those schedule one substances. So if I was seeking one of these forms of treatment, either psilocybin or MDMA, are those covered under health insurance? No, because they are not approved by the FDA either. So those to be, um, to, to take those in a legal, ethical way, so to speak, uh, you would need to find a research study um, at this point. That's um, and and actually there is research that's being done in Chicago um, using psilocybin for depression. Um, as far as MDMA, um, there is something that so where MDMA is on its um, in its FDA research. Right now, it's in um, what's called phase three, and once it um, once it gets to a certain phase and it's um, had positive results, which it has, 
the FDA will open up something called compassionate um, use or open access. And um, what that means is that it can be used for people who have who, who have ailments where no other treatment is working. This was actually something that um, came out of the AIDS epidemic when things were really bad and people were dying and the FDA couldn't quite keep up with, um, with, with treatments. Um, and so if anything that was experimental was showing to have any, any kind of positive outcome, they would open up these treatments to people before they were FDA approved as sort of like an, a last ditch effort. So MDMA and psilocybin have both been approved for this, uh, what's called open access or compassionate use. And I know that prior to the pandemic, there were um, some folks here in Chicago that were looking to have these open access uh, sites through, um, through the FDA opened up. But of course, that was, that was shut down um, with the pandemic. So, you know... I think it's important also to acknowledge that, uh, again, these are illegal drugs, and I'm certainly not promoting their use recreationally, but we know that that happens, right? We're not an abstinence-only um, education site here. So another thing that I think is important to talk about is something called harm reduction. Um, so people do use these drugs and these medicines recreationally. And part of um, what therapists uh, are encouraged to do ethically is to learn about how um, these drugs are used, what the potential benefits of them can be, helping um, like a, a client to who might be using it recreationally um, to educate them, to point them to where they can be educated, uh, to know what the risk factors might be in terms of um, interactions with other drugs, other recreational drugs, um, psychiatric medication. Um, so it is important to um, also take on a harm reduction perspective when these drugs are being used recreationally. And just one more little piece about that that I think is really interesting. Um, and of course, we can't talk about psychedelics without talking about MAPS, which is um, an organization. It's the um, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They are sponsoring these FDA um, research studies. They're a huge uh, organization that's been a proponent of psychedelics um, throughout the last couple of decades. And um, they have something that's called the, the Zendo Project, which goes to um, festivals where people you know, sort of notoriously take uh, psychedelics and help them to process difficult experiences um, that they might be having in the festival setting, like Burning Man or Bonnaroo or different settings like that. Uh, so harm reduction is definitely something we want to be talking about when we're talking about the use of these, these medicines. Um, so you said that psilocybin and MDMA are schedule one drugs, whereas ketamine is schedule three. Does that mean that ketamine is approved by the FDA and it's like, it's more commonly used in medicine but schedule one is like still being researched. Yeah. Um, so 
So schedule three means that it has been approved by the FDA. It's approved for medical use, though. It's not approved for the mental health use. And they do distinguish between the two. So that's why at these ketamine clinics that are helping people with depression or PTSD in that setting, uh, it's not covered by insurance. However, if you went into the emergency room for you know, that physical trauma, in theory, and you know, don't I, I, I don't know what your insurance coverage is, but in theory, your insurance would cover that because it's FDA approved for that for that reason. The distinction of Schedule One um, it means that it's illegal and that there is no there's no medical recognized medical use for it. Uh, yeah, you were saying in the in the psilocybin sessions that you uh, like try to provide a safe space, like a comfortable space for the participants. But yeah. like, what happens if there is a negative reaction? Do you guys have a protocol for handling that, or is it like tailored to everything? Is like you know sometimes like as Christina was saying, when she took mushrooms, when she had a, a bad reaction, uh, a few times I've taken it, it's mostly been great, but every once in a while there is that like high anxiety period or just like things feel very out of your own control. Uh, so I was just wondering how you would handle something like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it is part of this certification process that I'm in. That's certainly a big part of the, the training. And um you know, depending on what it is, there's um, there's different ways of of approaching it. So, um, you know, when we look at something like um, people who are being treated for PTSD, there is sort of a high likelihood that they might have um, encounter a difficult memory or some sort of traumatic experience, and um, so. The, the the task is to help to create a sense of safety um, and help that person through that experience, right? Um, and it, it's it's a really delicate um, task because there can be a really high healing potential in that when we can face these challenging experiences in a different way. Um, and so that's part of why those preparatory sessions are really important is how to really lay the foundation for safety and to know that there may, you know, that's part of the education. There may be a difficult experience that's encountered. Um, and here are some ways to approach that. Um, of course, the journey will unfold as it does, and these things can't be predicted for necessarily. Um, but from what I have um, heard, there's high level of skills with the clinicians that are conducting this research and very low rate of sort of intolerance for the experience, like need to leave and flee. Um, the, that, that's not happening quite as much. You know, that might happen in a festival setting, mm -hmm. right, when there isn't that preparatory um, experience or the more intentional, right? It's just more to like kind of vibe out and ha and have fun. And I'm certainly not suggesting that was what happened with you, Christina, like to, you know, to, to encounter something difficult internally or like a mistake, a stupid conversation you had with someone, right? It can be anything that sort of changes the experience and to, to know that you're in a safe place where you can process that in a different way. 
um, has the potential to be healing in that sense. Well, and I think that what you said initially about the treatments that I was like this, I mean, of course, going into using mushrooms recreationally, I was like, yeah, I'm totally in a safe space, but I actually wasn't. And I didn't, and I, one, was in transit. So that was already like, you know, I went from one space to another and then like not really knowing exactly where I was, knowing where exits were. I was with a close friend, but there was also somebody that I didn't know there. So like having a controlled safe space and also like a controlled dosage and somebody that's like a professional monitoring this that you trust, like would probably be a much more comfortable setting depending on your experiences with like the medical industry. So yeah, like talking about those preparations and those conversations before administering makes so much sense of like building that safe space where like you're not going to freak out. And if you do, you at least like have all the resources that you need to understand like what's going on. What's happening, right, right, where you can maybe find a, t- a touchstone of safety or, you know, whether that's inside of you, like, okay, I took, you know, I took this substance, right, this this might happen, or I don't know who that person is, where, you know, where can I go to someone who I trust, or, yeah, can I stop being in transit right now and yeah. get I'm yeah. safe? Oh. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. No. And I, I think you're you're also mentioning something that I think is really important and is that the efficacy of these um, medicines and, and this research is showing it's it's not just the the medicine or the um, substance itself, it's the substance with the the therapeutic aspect of it. Um, and having um, having that as a part of the treatment is what's part of what's shown to be effective. Um, And I want to also say that that's, uh, it's really important to to name this piece. And um, I should have already, that this is a very, very narrow focus of looking at these medicines and these these substances. You know, we're looking at, we're talking about it from a research and sort of Western therapeutic model, whereas some of these substances have been used for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, in indigenous cultures. And so this is just a, you know, a really small slice of um, how these substances are being used um, in sort of a medical and treatment way. And certainly in the, in the program that I'm in that that's being acknowledged and, and talked about. So I wanted to ask you this question since your background is so expansive in different types of therapeutical release, I don't know, or, Mm -hmm. uh, um, but do you have any advice for folks who are just kind of starting their mental health journey, especially like coming out of this pandemic, re-emerging in this society and, and maybe Um, They're like, I think this is a little bit more tough than I expected. Um, What's some advice that you have for somebody who's just doesn't know where to go currently? Yeah. 
Well, I think because of this pandemic and actually what was endemic even prior to the pandemic was loneliness and disconnection um, is, is something that our society is facing right now in a, in a really, um, in a really intense way. So for mental health, what we know is that connection really, really matters. Um, and that lonely, feeling lonely and feeling isolated and um, any kind of disconnect is the opposite of health, whether that's mental health or physical health. So um, finding connection, however, one can through community, uh, through relationships, um, in nature, um, with pets, animals. Um, I think connection is really at the, the foundation of, of any kind of health again, and certainly mental health. Um, and in terms of seeking out uh, mental health treatment, Chicago does have a lot of resources. Um, uh, I will plug the um, Family Institute, which is where I went for my um, graduate school. The Family Institute at Northwestern University um, has all kinds of tiers of, um, of affordable therapy available um, from their uh, training institute. Again, I, I trained as a um, therapist at the Family Institute when I was in graduate school, which has a very, very low sliding scale. Um, and, you know, good old Google is a, is a really great resource for finding low cost and even no cost um, mental health resources uh, in the city. And um, really fortunate to live in a city that, that has so many resources in that way. And with the pandemic, um, you know, one of the silver linings, of course, that has come from this is the ability to use telehealth. Um, so, you you know, I see um, I see clients in their cars or while they're outside walking, um, and that there there is accessibility in that way. Um, so, those are sort of my my two suggestions: is connection and then seeking out any uh, clinical resources. I have a question. Too. <laughs> um, I just realized we've talked to a lot of, um, you know, mental health professionals. And I don't think we've ever asked this question of like, if it's not working for you, <laughs> what's the best way to go about changing your therapist. Like, I think that there's a lot of guilt and you're like, well, I should just stick with it. But like, if you're not vibing with your mental health professional, I guess like from your standpoint, like, how do you feel? <laughs> like if someone, if it weren't vibing. Yeah. Someone, and, like, and they were like, Hey, I want to go see somebody else. Or <laughs> if they, if you can just tell that like, it's not really clicking. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, just a, a couple of things before I say kind of where I would, from my perspective, is that to know that 
you are in you are in treatment or you are in therapy at will, right? So you are able to exit that relationship at any point. Um, and my suggestion always for people, because I hear this a lot, this question comes up a, a lot in different contexts, uh, always is to, if you feel comfortable and safe enough, you know, that that's really important. And we do know that the, um, the relationship that you have with your therapist more than what sort of treatment modality model they follow, whatever it is that they're doing, the relationship and the connection is the greatest predictor of um, therapeutic outcomes. So it's really about safety and connection, mm-hmm. how you feel. Um, and so um, if you feel comfortable and safe enough to bring it to the therapist is to talk about it. Right? We as therapists are, are trained to talk about the relationship in the room. You know, and if that's something that you don't feel comfortable doing, that's okay too. But that generally is my my sort of first bit of advice is to let the therapist know. Um, and part of um, how you can choose to proceed from there is how the therapist receives that information, how you feel, right? How it feels to talk about this therapist, to talk to this therapist about something hard, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they didn't take that as bad as I thought, or Gosh, that that went in a different way than I had imagined. Um, but it's all, you know, in theory, it can be a collaboration, and then a therapist can help connect you with someone uh, that might be a better fit for you or to explore what's not working um, and how they might be able to tailor that within the therapy or outside of it. Um, and yeah, so that that I guess that would actually that would answer the question on the other side. That that would be my approach to it as well. Yeah, is just getting curious and always empowering the client. You know, the person that I'm working with to know that this is it has to work for them in order for it to work. That's a great question, Veltri. I feel like people ask us that a lot, and we're always like, "Well, it's like dating; you just got to find the right one." But we've never gotten another perspective. I always tell them my completely uneducated opinion, which is kind of what you just said. But I was just guessing. I was like, "I mean, like, tell them, and maybe they'll help you find somebody different. They probably have a lot of friends that <laughs> do the same thing." Yeah. It's, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Sometimes it's, you know, it's also about identifying patterns that maybe when something doesn't work, do you want to just sort of exit sort of like dating or maybe you stick around and see if that, if it's something that can be repaired. And when, when there is that repair process, actually that can be quite healing and therapeutic in and of itself. Does anybody else have any more questions until I ask my, you know, final question? All right, here we go. We love to ask this question to everyone we talk to. Um, What do you think the future of alternative medicine looks like to you? Mm. Yeah. Well, I will tell you what I hope it will look like. and particularly what we've been talking about today in terms of access to um, these psychedelic medications, medicines, um, 
And I hope that they are um, accessible in a way that promotes um, mental health for everybody. Um, we can't talk about mental health without talking about social justice. Uh, and there is so much healing to be done on those levels. So really looking at it, not just from an individual, you know, having individual access to these medicines, but also how, in a way, the whole structure can be changed um, where there is more access for people who need it and um, that it's it's all infused in, Christina, this is sort of circling back to where we started um, with an element of compassion and, and true care and concern for, for the people around us and, and not just about profit um, or privileging one group of people over another. So that's, that's my hope. I love that. A great question. All right, everybody. I just want to say thanks for tuning in to our final episode for Mental Health Awareness Month. Myself, Matt Cole, and Christina Veltri are going to take a little break. And we will catch you on the flip side with our second season of Please Hustle Responsibly podcast. But in the meantime, um, we hope you enjoy these great, uh, these great sunshine days. Get outside, move a little bit. And as always, please remember to hustle responsibly. Hustle responsibly.